Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. <laughs> Hello, hello, welcome to Robin and Jason's Book Shambles. I am back after an absence of illness, which is very unfair, very harsh, uh, but I'm stronger than ever. If by stronger than ever. Oh, God, don't say that. That's because I'm a big fan of dramatic irony. So it's going, what happened to Josie? She uh, was shot with a crossbow immediately afterwards, (laughs) and she never felt as strong. (laughs) Do you know what? No. I was going to say, if you've got to go be shot by a crossbow, but no. No got to go go aged 105 surrounded by your family who are all holding crossbows and no one <laughs> quite knows which one the bolt came out from <laughs> like a standoff yeah <laughs> i want to die like sebastian but with crossbows <laughs> is it, it yeah there's that trope isn't there of being a very old person dying a young person's death yeah i would like to i would like to die like a gay martyr but very old very very old <laughs> Um, so yeah, welcome back to Book Shambles. As you can see, nothing's really changed. Um, I am very excited to introduce our guest today, uh, who is the writer and broadcaster Lucy Cook. Um, hi, how are you? I'm I'm fantastic, thank you. We we really love to describe everybody as a broadcaster. It's very important Lucy to me. Lucy is a broadcaster. I've seen her attacked by seagulls. Huh. You were, weren't you? You were attacked by seagulls and St Ives. Yeah, I was. I had to stand on St Ives Beach um, trying to get a sandwich stolen out of my hand by a seagull, which, you, which you'd think would be easier than it was. I mean, instead, I gathered an enormous crowd of holidaymakers who couldn't believe their luck that they were going to see... <laughs> Um, but going to be able to watch somebody being attacked by a seagull. See, whilst... I think you'd say I, I gathered an enormous number of holidaymakers who, having spent all their money on the rental of going to St Ives, hadn't had a sandwich for a week. <laughs> so I'd just been attacked by the human beings. No, they get they couldn't afford to get a sandwich uh, stolen because they'd spent so much on their rent. No, but no, I just basically I I, uh, I stood there like a lemon and. Um, Eventually, a seagull stole a sandwich out of my hand, and uh, and the crowd appeal with joy at my misfortune. <laughs> it's Very unusual harsh. in St Ives because they are generally they I mean seagulls there are pretty, but it's generally they like that moment. I mean that horrible moment which has a, a level of slapstick, but too great a level of tragedy, which is the child with the uh, loosely yeah, held ice cream, mm. and I've seen that many a time there. Horrible. Um, so, your book, uh, we'll start off on that and then we'll talk about books that have influenced you. And what's, uh, is the Truth About Animals? And you have spent, uh, you were on uh, Infinite Monkey Cage the other week. We were talking about uh, uh, Underpants for Frogs. We won't talk about that now because they can listen to that show instead. Um, Not instead as well. As, as well, sorry, yeah. Uh, How dare you? <laughs> the... Just because he's got all the money, <laughs> your, your other radio partner. The um, He lets me have a go in his car sometimes, just sit in the front seat. I'm not allowed to turn it on. I don't know how it drives. But the, don't uh, take the top down, keep it on. No, that's it, take the... Oh, now we can see the stars. Oh, no, I'm distracted by the stars. Where's the road? <laughs> oh, Brian. Anyway, so uh, this book, you basically spent a very long time in, I presume, the British Library, amongst other libraries, finding out the 
intriguing myths and truths of animals and the kind of the the, the history. It, it, it's an it's an encyclopedia, really, isn't it? Of um, intriguing anecdotes about individual animals. It, it's yeah, it's it's sort of a, a history of natural history, I suppose, and that, that deliberately shows the checkered path to truth and how hard it is to try and understand animals and uh, because they are very complex and peculiar creatures. Um, and I did in order to research the book, I spent an enormous amount of time in. British Library reading old natural history books from all the way from Aristotle onwards. Who's your favourite? Because there's like like Pliny the Elder, he did some natural history stuff. Aristotle is meant to be, you know, he, I know he got things wrong about women in terms of teeth, etc. Did no research. It's just like women can't be friends. That's that. Like, do some research. Aristotle was actually he he you know he was the first proper scientist and he did actually have proper scientific method in that he went and observed nature and you know came up with theories which he then tried to prove or disprove but he couldn't do that with women he literally instead was like women can't make friends bye bad work is that yeah, actually what he, he said I yeah, only think about the teeth he said there's different types of friendship and that there's true friendship between men and basically women are, it's not possible for women to have true friendship because they don't understand because their brains aren't good enough yeah he didn't get everything right by <laughs> a long way I mean he, he wasn't very good on eels either so eels <laughs> and women very weak spot for Aristotle um, but other things that he he was you know very uh, ahead of his time really and, and he was he was brilliant so he kicked off the science of of zoology really he's a godfather of zoology he did as i say he made he made he made some errors but he got a, he got a lot of things right pliny basically copied everybody that went before him <laughs> so he was the great roman naturalist and then and then after pliny everything went terribly awry because uh essentially christianity hijacked science and it was the fourth in the fourth century. This book was written called the Physiologus, um, which was one of the most copied books. I think probably a, a second only to the Bible. I think it was at the time, um, and that was the very first or was the model for all of the bestiaries. Basically, I, I expect the, the the listeners will have heard of the bestiaries. They were the they were the sort of mid, mid, middle ages encyclopedias of of animals, and. Whereas Aristotle had, you know, observed animals and, and he, he'd drawn some slightly ludicrous conclusions from what he'd seen, such as the nature of women's friendships and, and how eels reproduced. But he made a lot of, you know, very good sound observations. The, physio the physiologus really did just just blended up myth, um, folklore and a smattering of fact um, and made these stories, they were very, they looked, they basically, they weren't looking for, that the author the author of the Physiologus and then of the, of, the, of the Beastries weren't looking to tell the truth about animals and enlighten the audience about animal behaviour. Instead, they were looking for, looking at animals for, to tell moral stories about how humans should behave. Sure. And it's amazing actually how many of those stories then just remained in you know in the popular conscious for well, so like? it's like kind of uh, the equivalent of march of the penguins the uh, english language version <laughs> yes exactly yeah i mean they, they exactly they were i mean i often say that actually that that you know modern day documentaries uh, natural a lot of natural history documentaries and, and actually the popular press report on animals much like the bestiaries i mean the daily mail loves an animal story and to be honest there's not much to choose between them their reporting and that of the uh, scribes religious scribes of the mid-century 
So what were the most... Fa- I mean, when, when you get into the British Library, which is such an incredible building anyway, mm. every time you walk in there and you see that kind of, you know, the big glass bookcase, which is right in the middle, where every now and again you see a librarian wandering around. It's just, you know... Um, it's, so what were, the, what were the books that you were most eager to get your hands on? Because I imagine some you have to go through, you know, something of a Kafkaesque kind of process to, to get hold of them. Um, well, I suppose that... The there were some sort of peculiar ones that I was rather excited about, like um, uh, a chap called Voronov, uh, who was a, a Russian scientist working in Paris um, at the turn of the twin in, in the early 1900s, and he wrote a book about testicular grafting and and how to prevent aging by grafting uh, slices of, of of testicle onto human testicles I was quite keen to get my hands on that, but it was actually it was a really disappointing read. Huh. I was one of the things I thought, oh God, how fantastic is that book going to be? you know testicular grafting um but um but there were no clues as to how to extend my own life and <laughs> so <laughs> and, and it was actually help. it was actually very dry you know <laughs> but uh, there were I know I I just I ploughed through a lot of a lot of books But did he manage to do any testicular grafts or was this very much just a you know this this wasn't a practical this was I mean, who was he testicular was grafting on? Yeah, so he was. He was. Sorry, I didn't make that clear. Actually, he was. He was grafting slithers of chimpanzee testicle onto the testicles of billionaires. Wow. Yeah. How do you do that then? Because I mean, this is a long time ago. This is. Right, I mean, anaesthetic fortunately has come in. Yeah. So he was cutting open the the sack. Yeah. Was he? And then. That, well, there's, the, the, book, the book is full of details of exactly. So go read his book to see exactly how he did it. But it, obviously, it didn't. It didn't work. Clearly, it didn't work. Oh but no! Was, don't worry. I'm not asking because I'm worried. I've aged <laughs> too much already to start making take these kind of risks with my testicles. Uh, also, if I was a younger man, I might think I want to keep this. But I'm an old bald man now, anyway. But he, uh, interestingly enough, it was it was it was a reassuringly expensive treatment to prevent old uh, to prevent aging and. He, he used sort of silk thread to sew, sew on these um, slithers of, of what he called monkey gland. And um, Sigmund Freud actually signed up for the treatment. And he lost his jaw. So that's... He I lost mean, his jaw? Um, anyway, sorry. But there so... are some, it is amazing, the treasures that are in the British Library. I mean, it was, that is like a totally obscure book. You know, mm. you just think that is... When I read about it, I just thought, well, they won't have that book, you know, because that is so random. But yes, I just... I love the British Library. I just I just think it's just the most amazing place. You sort of think, where are all the books? I mean, I know they've got that glass bit in the middle. You go in and there's, like, all these books on display. But they must have... Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. You sort of feel like maybe it goes all the way down to the Middle Earth or something, and there are munchkins down there or something, kind of wheeling around um, wheelbarrows full of really obscure books. Because I would, I'd order up these really obscure books, and then you know they're like, oh yes, that might take that might take forty eight hours. You're thinking, I can't believe just forty eight hours. It's way to the Lost Ark, isn't it? Yeah, and they yeah. must have warehousing, but they must have underground stuff. But then I was thinking, but the tube is right there. Yeah. So is there other are there underground parts of the British Library that you open one door and you're in the catacombs <laughs> of the tube? Like there must be some. And eventually you arrive in Australia. <laughs> I wish mobile libraries had a little tune playing like ice cream vans. What tune would it be? It could just be any. Uh, um, I suppose it'd probably be the Smiths. 
you know, more striking books, you know. No, No, you're still allowed the Smiths. You're still allowed the Smiths. You're allowed the Smiths. Some of the later solo work, you're not. But I would like that. I would like if they played a little ding, 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 ding. Oh, it's the mobile library. <laughs> I think that. Um, oh, and like wheezy children sort of half running to not why miss wheezy? it. Why wheezy? Because it's about it's sportishness versus bookishness. It doesn't mean we're end. wheezy. See, right, Brian so Cox. Why are if I'm not part of that we? But I'm just saying that Brian Cox, when he when I had to do when he bought his personal trainer and I'd do exercises, right? Yeah. He thought he thought, oh, that would be really funny because it'll kill Robin, right? He thought it'd be really yeah. funny. Me, oh, I can't lift the weights, but of course I can because yeah, did... I go from town to town with all big bags of books everywhere, don't I? So you did sit ups before the shows when we were talking together. You had yeah. your regime. Yeah. So, but mainly it's carrying the big heavy books. So we're only wheezing sometimes because it's like the world's strongest man, a bibliophiliac version <laughs> of the world's strongest man. So this is, right, so this book, mm. now, what were, you've said about these bizarre tomes <laughs> that you thought they'll never be able to say. Mm. What, what else were the, the, the books you thought? The, I mean, what's the one that you are most celebratory about being able to now share with a big audience because you, you that your book is out now and you have amassed this enormous amount of information and, uh, and chosen what should be shared and, and, and what you've decided doesn't quite hit the interest mark. Oh, I mean, my, my favourite book, which is just brilliant, that I'm so happy that I discovered by doing this book, is uh, Sir Thomas Brown's Pseudodoxia Epidemica, which is, he was just this just amazing wonderful fantastic he was a 17th century mythbuster basically and oh. so that so the 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 bestiaries were out there for for sort of 5 or 600 years they just clogged up science science was doing really well and then the bestiaries came along and it went off piece for a long time and people thought that badgers had one leg shorter than the other or that kingfish dead kingfishers made good weather vanes or all these ludicrous things these that, are both true those were things that, that, that people believed because the beasteries told them. And Sir Thomas Brown came along and he and he and he went, Well, this is all this is all nonsense, isn't it? I'm gonna put it all to the test. So he did things like, you know, he measured badgers' legs to see if they had legs on one side shorter than the other and discovered that they were perfectly the same length on either side. And and he also tried using dead kingfishers as weather vanes and hung them by the ceiling by silk threads and reported on the fact that actually when the wind blew, they blew useless in opposite directions and couldn't tell the weather at all. So I just I just completely love this man and his book is just fantastic because he takes these these myths that he refers to as vulgar errors and um and dispels them um, one by one. And um and what's so sort of fantastic about it is he 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 does it all all of this you know this this really um, forward-thinking scientific logic is woven in this florid stream of extraordinary words that he's made up. <laughs> because if he didn't have the right word, he made it up. I think it's something like 800 words that he get, he gifted to the English language, almost as much as Shakespeare. Um, like what? Which so he did... I'd have to just... Let me just refer to my... Because I, I know I made a note I wanted to tell you about his words. But, um, yeah, here we go. <coughs> so he came up with... For instance, hallucination. That's such a great word. Electricity. Huh. Carnivorous. So misconception. Before electricity was... He, he came up with the word. That was Thomas Brown who came up with that word. Wow. So all of those were like, were success stories that are, that are still very much in use today. Retromingent, huh. which is uh, his word for urinating backwards. 
didn't catch on in quite the same way. But, you know, you can't win them all, can you? Also, not trying to be vulgar, but, like, minge is, like, a word for... I mean, it's like a crass word for vagina, and, like... That's, that, that must be where it comes from a bit, right? There so must be linguistically right. yeah, the root exactly. of it. Maybe the, the minge from Retro Minge yeah, has hung about, but the, uh, the it, retro. But exactly, <laughs> but if you look at it like that, the mm. two it makes perfect linguistic sense, mm. the two elements of it. So It is <laughs> nice, though, isn't it? It has a sense, really, of perhaps a, a gallery of nostalgic images of uh, vaginas that are with <laughs> us no more. The kind of, oh, we went to the Retro Minge exhibition. You don't <laughs> see vaginas like that anymore. It really was... They don't just, make it Lovely ones from the seventh century. (laughs) (laughs) But that's really interesting. So he, do you think he had a system for how he made up his words? Like, do you think he saw himself as, you know, in the way that like, when when people are naming like botany and things like that, they decided to come up with different systems for creating the words and stuff like that or do you think he was just like this sounds good oh yeah i think yeah i think he was the latter i don't he, he wasn't a, he wasn't a new linnaeus coming up with a whole new That's taxonomy system of. yeah no yeah. he was just he was just inventing words i mean he he was that sort of you know a classic british polymath you know he did lots of brilliant things and uh god bless him and why did you because you you, when, when you went and 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 you you studied and you went to university to study natural history, you were not that. But you you'd already had a career beforehand, hadn't you? Mm-mm. Do you not? So you were natural history first, yeah. And then you kind of you did you go into TV for a while and then yeah, but not in terms of scientific te- television. And then you returned to th- this first love. Yeah, ex- that's exactly what I did. I studied zoology at Oxford um, with under Richard Dawkins. In fact, did, does that mean you were at the Pitt Rivers and things like that? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, That's really it's exciting. fantastic. Yeah, no, it was an amazing, amazing place to be, and um, and then when I left, no, when I left university, I, I sort of thought about becoming an actress. Actually, I was very good friends with Sally Phillips, and she went into going and doing acting, and I thought about that and then I ended up getting a job Jonathan Ross I got a job working for Jonathan Ross's production company as his receptionist that I then got sacked from <laughs> because that I must have been a tough thing to get sacked from because I just did an event with Roland Rivron and, and thinking of Roland worked a lot with Channel X and uh, yeah. he never got sacked and he's, his, his autobiography is uh, yeah I know a drunken it, affair. It's full of I, sackable offences. Yeah. I know. Well, like, so yes, I know there were there was a lot of people doing a lot of very sackable offences everywhere. But my sackable offence was not smiling when I answered the phone. Um, oh, because they can hear. They can know, but apparently they can hear. Well, I do get told because I often smile when I talk, and people like always tell me that I either sound pleasantly like I'm smiling or too much like I'm smiling. Let's so do then, three versions. See if the audience can guess, right? And then we'll give you the answers at the no, end. No, but, but the thing is, it, you can't win as a woman because pe- people will, you know, they'll use their, they'll use a specific to hide the real complaint, which is, I don't want to speak to a woman. Or, sorry, guys. I'm sorry if I sound embittered. Okay, so this is me talk. Okay. Okay. How does this sound? How does this sound? How does this sound? You can you tell. You can tell because yeah, you, uh, you know you can tell because that last one you were smiling, weren't you? Yeah, but I was trying not to moderate it. But I think the problem is when you're smiling, the world smiles <laughs> with you. Because <laughs> yeah. that's harsh. So they, yeah, they sacked you for not being for not smiling. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't wildly enthusiastic about being a receptionist. If I'm honest, it's actually really difficult. I have a huge amount of sympathy for receptionists mm. because it's really hard because you answer the phone and people go, mm. <laughs> you're like, oh, what? Sorry, could you spell that? What, John? 
Smith, you know, you feel like such an idiot, but it's very hard to hear what people's names are. So I didn't like it very much. And then I and then I got given a job as um, a runner on Vic and Bob's show. Oh, fun. Yeah, which was amazing. And then I did comedy for a while and then I worked in entertainment and then I just started doing documentaries. So, yeah, I, I moved far away from zoology, very far away. But it was always there sort of calling me back and I'd spend my weekends, you know, looking for frogs and still being the zoologist, the geeky person that I am. And eventually I thought, well, I just, I just want to go back and that's all I really want to do. I want to tell stories about animals. You know, essentially, you know, I was I, by that stage I was a documentary filmmaker, and so I was I was telling stories, but about history or social history or architecture or all sorts of things. And I so I wanted to go back and make natural history programs. So that's what I did. It's a small leap, though, isn't it, from Captain Bomber Jackets to um, frogs in taffeta underpants? One <laughs> yeah. of Captain Bomber Jackets. I like to imagine you were involved in actually designing some of the Captain Bomber Jackets from that particular series of uh, Reeves and Mortimer. <laughs> I was going to say, like, in terms of the sheer level of invention and colour and imagination, it's not that much of a leap, is it? You know, when you think about the animal world and how varied and exciting and fun and unreal it seems sometimes, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think so. One of the things that I, I you know, that I loved about researching the history of, of scientific endeavour is just how surreal it is. You know, the, the sort of the surreal nature of the things that we believed. So, you know, from Aristotle thinking that um, there was animals would spontaneously generate from the action of water on mud all these sort of wonderfully surreal things to the surreal ways that we went about trying to discover how animals work. So there's this Italian Catholic priest called Lazarus Balanzani who's this incredibly curious mind who I write about quite a lot in the book because he wielded a, a, a mean pair of scissors in the name of science and was always always like either fashioning um, bespoke outfits for his uh, animals uh, <laughs> or cutting their ears off in oh the name of God. science. So he was... Um he was quite an extraordinary character, but oh, the stories are really surreal. You know, they they are naturally very funny. I think. The um, so what were your inspirations when you were young? Then what were the books that you were reading? Were you were you initially drawn to the kind of you know the the, the nature book and those kind of you know what we see in autumn books, or was there an, a, a, another world? What were your first loves? Oh gosh, I loved. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh my word! Gosh, I think I read that book again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Um, Can I ask you? Did you know when you read it as a kid? Did you go, oh, it's a religious allegory? This is drawing me towards the Messiah because it's one of no. those ones. Where, yeah, I was I so was... upset when I found that out. I yeah. was so upset. Oh, what do you say? Because I was, I was, I was in love with Aslan. I mean, I really. <gasps> oh yeah, there was I something. was in love with Aslan, and I was a bit confused because he was a lion, and I didn't understand but I felt very powerfully drawn towards him, you know. But I didn't ever feel drawn to, you know, I was, I think I was always an atheist. I don't think I've ever believed in God. So See, I was a very religious child uh, until I was about 12, 13. And I would have loved to know there was like a religious element. It completely didn't play to me either. And I had exactly the same thing where even watching, there was a TV series when I was a child of it. But even watching the TV series, I was kind of a bit... 
in love with the lion. Mm. Which now, yeah, doesn't seem right, but at the time felt very natural and very Very real. normal, yes, exactly. <laughs> Just And when he died on the... Th- oh, oh, unbearable. Gosh, yeah. Unbearable. I get worried now at that moment, though, when you were with Richard Dawkins <laughs> and uh, I went, so, Lucy, what is your favourite book? Well, Richard, it's The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. <laughs> well, I think you're going to have to go out of the room until you've done a, a good bit of thinking, Lucy. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I don't know if that had come up you in my... You know your favourite children's book is On the Origin of Species. <laughs> oh, come on, because it's got a brand hedge in it <laughs> filled with all manner of life but I but I did um, and I but I I know I did love all those ladybird books I had I mean, the thing that I was obsessed with as a child was um was it were ponds and pond life oh, so yeah. I had like I had a pond life book and and I had a book of British birds and I they were my favorite books and I just memorized the whole thing and my dad because I was essentially an only child. I had half-sisters who were much older than me and were not interested in playing with me at all. So I, I played by myself in the garden and Dad sunk this old Victorian bath into the into the ground and, and I geekily created the perfect ecosystem for frogs, which were my favourite animal. And so I... That was exactly... I really? was exactly the same. Except we had a sink, not a bath, but frogs. I was. I had a frog collection. Did you really? Yes. Aww. I did a project book on frogs. Did you really? Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, they're and amazing. They're... Yeah, because metamorphosis. Yes, I mean, it's exactly. just—it's like magic happening before your eyes. It was so yeah. fantastic, and it ha- the fact it happens in this transparent. Yes. You know, it doesn't happen enclosed by something, but it's oh, you can you watch it, it yourself every day. I mean, it was just—I loved it so much, and so. That was just that. That was my kind of Narnia. That that bath was my was my wardrobe door into this watery kingdom. You know that I could, you know, I could observe and 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 document. So I'm mean, yeah. I was always an obsessive documenter. So I you know I'd, I'd make my own nature books as well. So I'd sort of make a lot of books all about ponds and birds and things. That's you know. so nice. Yeah. Do you still have things like that? I found one the other day and it wasn't nearly as good as I remembered it. Oh. <laughs> I remember the boat I remember it being like really uh you know quite involved but uh it was it was you know it was, it's very charming. But also I remember sorry it, it, this is not really relevant to what you just said but I remember really distinctly you go back one day and suddenly they have two arms at the front. Mm. And you go back a few days later and suddenly they've not got their tails, they've got four legs and stuff. And, and joy. Frogs, like British frogs, they're not horribly like bumpy toad-like things. Not that toads are horrible, but like much prefer a frog. And the frogs, are, they're very delicate and soft and... I, my problem was that we like kept wanting to handle them. My mum was like, "It's really not good for them to handle them. Like you really shouldn't keep picking them up." And me and my sister would be like, "We're just going to. They're actually our friends, so we're going to hold them a little bit." You know, um, it's a bit pathetic. Um, that's ah. Oh. Sorry, I've got oh, too not, excited. To yeah, think no, about it's them. not. It's not. You've it's, had a Proustian rush, haven't I you? I have definitely. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a sign of a very good person, <laughs> a person that was obsessed with ponds and frogs when they were young. Yeah, ponds. So, yeah. And so, did you? Does that mean that as you were growing up, you thought you'd like to go into sort of conservation or into something like that? Like, what what were you thinking when you were a teenager about what you wanted to do? I don't know. I mean, I I don't think I really had formulated. I think I think it was way longer than being a teenager that I had any concept of what I was going to do with my life. In fact, if somebody could tell me now, it might be useful. But. Um, uh, yeah, I think um, no. I, I I wanted to be a naturalist. You know, I wanted to work with animals, but I wasn't sure. I, I didn't want to be a vet because I thought well, I couldn't put I couldn't put puppies oh, yeah. down, or uh, you know, I'd be I'd get too emotionally involved in things. But I I knew I wanted to work with animals somehow. 
What about the first time in a science class where they brought out a dead frog and told Ooh. you to dissect it? I mean, that must have been a clash of ideologies. It was hard, yeah. I didn't... I, I actually... When, we, when I was at university... I I kind of stopped at the fish. I wouldn't dissect beyond a fish because I felt wrong about it, you know. I remember I remember going to one dissection class and they'd they had injected a a, like a salamander with rubber in and its veins were blue and its arteries were red and there were these salamanders that were like something out of a joke shop that you could bang them on the thing and they kind of bounced it was very very strange indeed but uh, I didn't I didn't uh, dissect that I what about your now in terms of when you're not in the British Library reading ancient tomes about testicular grafting? <laughs> um, what are you someone who mainly reads non-fiction? Because I think very often people, when they end up in in the kind of world that you're in, they just don't get the you know they, they go, oh, I, I'd like to read a novel, but does it contain facts and information? <laughs> and I know obviously they do really, but there's this kind of I've noticed a lot of people in the, in generally in, in science departments very often go, I just haven't got time because I've got to keep filling my mind with information. Well, certainly, yes. That I think you've probably just described me, actually, Robin. Um, how, uh, how? Uh, <coughs> yes, I, 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 I do tend to read books with facts in. Yes, um, and I, I used to read a lot of fiction, but I don't read very much fiction at all anymore. In fact, I can't even. I can't remember the last fiction book. I, I actually, I can remember, but I'm too ashamed to say what Go it on. was. I read The Girl on a Train is that, on is holiday. That, is that embarrassing? I don't know. I don't know. I've seen the film. I've seen the film as well. It saved a lot of time. Saved <laughs> I, a lot of time. I was, I, went, I was on holiday in Mallorca and I literally, I opened it up and I looked up and and every woman <laughs> was reading that book. It was an extraordinary... There must have been, like, six people around the pool all reading the same book, you know. You were participating in a cultural event. It's quite thrilling, though, isn't event. it? I was, exactly, yeah. Participating in a cultural event. Mm. I, I think... I. I, it's rare that I'll read something that's like a page turnery thing. Mm. And after I do, I always feel like a bit like, oh, what? you wasted your time, you're so silly. But mm. when I'm doing it, I'm absolutely mm. always turning the pages as quickly as I can, you know. Yeah, that's not like the book I read about the uh, wealthy woman who was worried about her son's lower class girlfriend. What was this day. book called? <laughs> it was called The Girlfriend. Okay. It was, and I, I found myself getting very frustrated by it because I didn't realise until about two thirds of the way through that you were supposed to empathise with the wealthy woman. Because I was reading it like, this person, I can't wait till the young woman kills her. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, we've got very derailed talking about nonsense when we were talking about. Um, so I know we're so, talking about. I don't think there is any shame in in no, reading that kind of book. I think it's an interesting problem that you get to, isn't it? Where you go because once you've started to read what might be considered to be more highfalutin, the popular immediately you go. Well, a lot of people do seem to be reading this. So yeah. I mean, I'm very guilty of. Uh, you know, I look back at some of my music tastes, the eighties and nineties, and pop bands that I just you know no 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 no, and now I go. Very catchy. Yeah. And, and was, like, reading gets canonised in this really weird way. Like, people really see it because it, it, it requires slightly more effort in a conscious way than other forms of kind of entertainment or information. People treat it like, well, if you're reading a book, you've got a tome in your hand. But, like, yeah, there's, there's, 
a million different reasons why you want to read at different times and you don't need to yeah you don't need to feel bad but at the same time you shouldn't be reading books about wealthy people anyway <laughs> sorry so As she walked in with her guttural voice but it's literally like that it was like she she took elocution lessons to hide the fact that she was from croydon <laughs> it's like you leave croydon alone <laughs> when only i can slag off croydon because i'm from bromley <laughs> um, so was there something that sort of did you kind of consciously turn away from fiction or was it just the case that once you were researching you felt like that's what your brain wanted was like even in your downtime like more info yeah i guess i suppose i suppose once i started you know i suppose once i i made this career switch and started you know immersing myself in natural history I just wanted to read as much as I could again you know because yeah. I'd been away from it for so many years and I so I just I read an enormous amount from sort of about the last 10 years I've tried to kind of keep on top of of what comes out also that's so exciting like mm. it's so wonderful to have that much enthusiasm unlocked again you know like to have that much of a passion for something to come back to it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, university is wasted on, well, certainly in my case, on eighteen to twenty-one year olds. You know, I, I pay to go back now and and study again and be fantastic. So yes, yes, exactly. We wouldn't be able to afford to, but uh, yeah, of course. Of but course. Uh, yeah, no. So I think it was. Um, it's really in the last ten years. Before that, I used to I used to read a lot of fiction, and, and that would be what I would buy. I'd buy yeah. I'd buy fiction, and I liked. I used to read a lot of. Um, Will Self and Martin Amis and I like science fiction and I, I, I kind of, I just, I don't read any of that stuff now anymore. It's that's just very quite, strange. That's quite interesting to me because I see, like, I see Will Self and Martin Amis as quite kind of like, not necessarily dour, but like there's something quite sort of like 90s and cynical about it. Mm. And then so then it's like you open this door to this like wild world of, mm. of the natural world after I that. Don't know, is... Will Self though, things oh, yeah. like the Great Apes. No, and that, you're and, you right. know, the first yeah. one, Cock and Bull, where oh, the vagina in the back of the, you know, all that stuff. And to be fair, and, and uh, the Book of Dave is like, oh, the Book full of, of Dave. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing, the Book yeah. of Dave. I love it. And, um, Great Apes as well. Mm. So I think he I'll is it, actually. I take it back. He's <laughs> quite. No, he is quite. Um, and 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 yeah, but they. I mean, I suppose. Yeah, Amos is 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 cynical, but uh, I but love right, I love like, money we'll so much. Um, oh, sorry. No, sure. But also, that's quite interesting because it reminds me a bit of you, Robin. Because I feel like when we first met, you were much more focused on like fiction in culture, and then you've had. You know, the past 10 years, your interests mm. have been so much more about kind of science and uh, non-fiction. I read too many biographies. Oh, and you were I like, used, oh, they all die. I quite biography obsessed. <laughs> I used to really, you know, any old uh, kind of actors, musicians, writers, whatever, I, I really, uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes I think I've read enough biographies of Boris Karloff, and I have now, and I love <laughs> Boris Karloff, but I suddenly would go, I don't, you know, and I, I do highly recommend the uh, book about Vincent Price by his daughter. Oh, I do love oh, Vincent Price. Mm. Yeah. Please tell me that his daughter is still very fond of him, and it's like... oh, don't worry, it's not one of those ones where uh, my evil father. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. no mommy dearest. <laughs> I can promise you that. Oh, now speaking of which, I know this is TV, but um, the, did you see the feud? Yeah. Ah, oh, we should talk about that. We will do a feud, but well, in fact, I'll tell you what. Let's do a. Uh, we'll do a Hollywood special. 
with that. I'd love that. Um, Lucy, before we run out of time, mm. uh, I we should ask, now in terms of books apart from your own mm. to inspire people about ideas of zoology oh, and natural because yeah. very often that's a hard thing mm. people think oh, I really want to get back into this or go into a subject for the first time and they go in at something that's too difficult or something which where the language you know those kind of transitionary books which start to introduce you to different like kind of, you know I think we talked about this before but the fact that once I start reading more science I'd never realised how many times the word inculcate would be you know uh-huh. different <laughs> and you need to get you know to, to, to st- you don't have to leap straight in with with the big books so what would you recommend um what would i recommend well i mean i do think richard dawkins is a fantastic writer and i you know the blind watchmaker is a fantastic book on evolution it's still a fantastic book mm. on evolution and, and and a lot of his books like the ancestor's tale is which has been re-released again recently it's not a difficult book to read at all you know he's a very very clever man but he he is very brilliant at communicating science, I think. I, I prefer his science books. Um, so I would say that, um, yeah, pretty much anything, anything that he's, he's written is, is worth reading if it's about evolution. Um, there's, a, there's an author I really love. I always read his books uh, called Henry Nichols. Mm. British writer and he wrote uh, The Way of the Panda and Lonesome George and he's got a book out at the moment just come out just about to come out called Sleepyhead which is the science of sleep Ooh. oh I've got that home someone just said yeah he's brilliant because we Henry. had we did a thing with Matthew Walker who who's uh, whose book Why We Sleep mm. is great and he's really uh, so it, it seems more I mean I wonder is, is this becoming is this partly because now there's so many people who go, oh, I can't sleep anymore, that in some way has led to... Has that increased sleep research? Or I wonder which way round it goes. Maybe. I mean, in Henry's case, he's an, he's, um, he's an archaleptic. So oh. he's always been a science writer. He's always written about animals. And then he's just, you know, on his like a fifth or sixth book, he's finally written something personal that relates to him yeah. and um, is about his quest to get to the roots of his narcolepsy and to understand why he does it and 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 about sleep itself so it's it's coincidental but i think it is quite zeitgeisty it seems at the moment there's quite a lot of sleep stuff about but i think it's one of those last great mysteries isn't it you know one of those things that we don't really understand sleep is still something we don't really understand why we do it so it has that allure that tantalizing allure of being something that we don't fully understand um, Lucy, thank you very much. My yeah. pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Sorry, did you have another question? No, I was just about to say thank you very much. Well, why don't you say thank you very much then? Thank you very much. I think <laughs> thank that went you. really well. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. This is uh, CosmicShambles.com is where we come from. This is Book Shambles. Uh, and we should say that uh, we've started loads of new things. We've got some, uh, we're going to have more live YouTube Q&As. Uh, we're going to start a, a, a book club. And there are also more and more, uh, we're doing lots of Book Shambles extras with more authors and uh, uh, so go to patreon.com slash bookshambles or cosmicshambles.com to find out about all these things that are going on. And uh, oh, also we're going to the Albert Hall on the 15th of June to do uh, a gig with Chris Hadfield and some other astronauts and Space bands shambles. and comedians. Space Shambles at the Albert Hall on the 15th of June. Incredibly exciting. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Doubly exciting for you. Well, it is. I'll be carrying my baby, I imagine. That'd if they're not out by the 15th of June, oh, I don't know, I won't be able to walk. Oh, That's I do it. hope you have a space papoose by then. <laughs> 15th of June is my boyfriend's birthday, actually. Well, so there we go. So the 15th of June, either come to the Albert Hall or pop round uh, Josie's boyfriend's house and bring a cake. <laughs> oh. 
Uh, we'd like to thank some of the people who help us make this podcast by supporting us via Patreon. And today they include Reiner Hoffman, Campbell Woods, Joe Gleason, Jason Hall, Andrew White, James Palmer Higgins, Akihito Wada, Dick and Edwards. Oh, I ended Dick and Edwards as if it was Dick and, and another person. I think I know Dick and Edwards. We know Dick and Edwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's an excellent fella. Yeah. And if you're pledging at one of the reward tiers that uh, gives you a physical reward, like uh, one of the T-shirts or Book Shambles uh, tote bag, something like that, now that we're one month into the second month of having the rewards, your physical rewards will be posted out to you in the next couple of weeks. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 